Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. For what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Thank you, Robin, for reading. So, as we begin, I want you to imagine that you're sitting at a red light, maybe it's when you're leaving today, um, and the light turns green, you start to go, and immediately a car whizzes past, running the red light across from you, you slam on your brakes, your heart's beating super fast, you almost got T-bone, but you look over and there's a cop sitting right next to you, sitting in his car. Um, so. He's not really paying attention. You roll down your window. You say, hey, yeah, guy just ran the red light. Are you going to go give him a ticket or something? Like, you almost killed me. And the police officer looks at you and says, sure, I'll do that. But I want to let you know we've been tracking all of your driving for the past six months. So I'm going to go ahead and write your tickets. And then I'll go take care of that guy. I'm guessing your response might be to kind of roll up your window, pretend you never said anything, and go on through the green light, checking your rearview mirror, hoping that you know, he's not coming to get you. So we all recognize that laws like don't want a red light or don't go 60 in a school zone are good. Um, these should be followed. We want these to be followed. We need laws like this. But do we really want to be judged by them? Because I'm glad for the jerk that cut me off to get pulled over and get a ticket, but when it's me getting a ticket for rolling through a stop sign, I'm making every excuse in the book to say why I don't deserve that. And this is exactly how Paul starts this passage. Paul here is looking directly at the Galatians. He's looking directly at us and saying, you who want to be under the law, don't you know what the law says? Don't you know what it means to be judged by the law? So to recap a little bit of Galatians, to kind of bring us up to speed on chapter 4, we've seen from the start of this book, if you've, if you've been here or you've read this book before, um, that in Galatians, Paul is addressing the church and rebuking them for accepting a false gospel. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning 
to a different gospel. And then for the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul essentially talks through his own experience and lays out what is the true gospel, what he wants them to believe. And then starting in chapter 3, Paul begins to appeal to the Galatians. All right, now that you've heard the true gospel, now that you know that, resist those who would lead you astray. Resist these false teachers and cling to the true gospel. And that brings us to our passage today at the end of chapter 4. Now, given the tone in the previous chapters, when Paul is saying under the law, what he's talking about is the Galatians being justified by their works, being saved by the good things they do, by their law following. And he's saying, okay, you want to be justified by works of the law, but do you understand how the law works? And I think um, Tim Keller here in a commentary I was reading gives a really helpful breakdown of how people relate to the law. So I'm going to go through kind of these, these four types of people that Keller talks about here. And I'm not sure that many of you listening today have found yourself kind of bound by the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, that's not really the situation we find ourselves in today. But a good question for you to be asking is, are you relying on your works, on your good behavior for salvation? So Keller breaks it out into these four types of people when it comes to relating to the law. The first person he lists is the one who is law-obeying and law-relying. And as we're going through these, be thinking through, okay, where, where do I tend? Where do I, where do I kind of lean? So law-obeying, law-relying. This is the person who does good works and is reliant on those good works for salvation. And typically people like this are a little bit smug, a little bit self-righteous, feel superior to others because, well, I've figured it out. I'm, I'm doing all the right stuff and all this right stuff is what saves me. But despite this, I think people in this mindset are also very insecure. After all, who can be absolutely sure that they're following everything perfectly? There has to be something that you're missing, whether it was yesterday or 10 years ago. Um, if you're claiming to be perfect, you you're probably missing something. I remember in college spending some time in Southeast Asia sharing the gospel with Muslims and whenever we asked if they were sure of their salvation, they could never really say that they were sure. They would always say that ultimately they don't know and it's up to Allah, it's up to God. And this makes sense because if you're familiar with Islam, you know that they believe in a combination of works and right belief for salvation. And who can know their works and if it's good enough and what's good enough until you stand before God. But as Christians, we believe in God's grace alone for salvation. That's all of what Paul is saying in the previous chapters in Galatians. It's by grace alone through faith. It's not by works. But when we fall into this category of relying on the law to save us, we're essentially living as though salvation is works-based. The second type of person that Keller lays out is the one who is law-disobeying and law-relying. So these are people who rely on good works for salvation. 
Um, They think it's their works that save them, but at the very least, they're self-aware. They recognize that they don't measure up. They're often full of guilt, shame, knowing that, man, things don't look good for me. I see this standard of perfection, and I can never attain it. And when it comes to spiritual things, they tend to back away. Um, They might come to church, sure, but diving any deeper is difficult because it just produces more guilt and more shame because they can never measure up. The third type of person that Keller lays out for us is the one who is law disobeying and not law relying. So these are people who break God's law and just frankly don't care. Um, They might believe in something spiritual. They maybe even believe that God exists, um, but they aren't compelled to obey anything that he commands. Um, These people typically have their own kind of moral code. Um, They've kind of made up what's right and wrong in their own eyes, and that's what they live by, and that's what they feel justified by. And finally, the fourth person that Keller lays out, which you can probably guess is the one that we're kind of aiming toward. This is the one who is law-obeying, but not law-relying. And these are Christians who understand the gospel. They understand that obeying God is a good thing, and they obey out of the joy of obedience. However, they know that their obedience earns them absolutely nothing before God. They know that they are saved by grace alone, and when they fall into sin, they turn to God in repentance, knowing that he is a loving and forgiving father. So as we think through these four kinds of people, um, as I mentioned, number four, we, we know that that's kind of the standard of a Christian, obeying the law, following what God says, but relying on grace alone for salvation. But if you're looking at this list, you'll probably find you ebb and flow throughout this on any given day. You might know deep down that, yeah, the law doesn't save me, but I want to obey it. But oftentimes there's part of you that says, no, I have to do better for God to accept me. Or uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's not actually um, grace that saves. Maybe it is me doing better. We, we go back and forth and back and forth through this any time. But I think it's helpful to at least recognize where we're falling in our understanding of the law. So what Paul is saying in verse 21 here in chapter 4 is, I don't think you actually want to be under the law because, well, let's look at what that actually means. And he does this through the story of Abraham and the birth of Isaac. And some of you might be familiar with the story. I'm sure some of you aren't. So I do want to spend a few minutes kind of recapping this story, this very, very important story back in Genesis. And if you're not familiar with it, I'd encourage you to kind of go back and read through um, this, this story in Genesis. So it's found in kind of Genesis 16 through 21, um, but we're even going to go back to Genesis 12 and look at the Abrahamic covenant. So this was essentially a covenant, a promise that God made with Abraham, and he tells Abraham I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name so great that you will be a blessing. And God promises that the land of Canaan will be given to Abraham's offspring. So this is a promise that's connected with Abraham 
having children. And at the time of this covenant, when this covenant is made, um, Abram is childless, and he's 75 years old. So um, anyone who's 75 and doesn't have children, and God says, I'm going to do this through your children, you're starting to ask a few questions as to how exactly is this going to happen. Later in Genesis 16, we see um, Abram and his wife Sarai grow impatient. Um, it becomes pretty evident that they don't really trust that God will follow through with what he promised. So Sarai decides to take the family servant, Hagar, and gives her to Abram to conceive a child, and thus Ishmael, Abram's firstborn son, is born. Now, a, a quick aside here, you might have been reading this or just hearing that and thinking, like, hold on, like, is that okay? Like, you know, the Bible says that this great figure, Abram, just slept with his servant and had a child. Isn't he cheating on his wife? It seems like we're just kind of brushing over that. Well, yes and no. So, culturally, at that time, this would have been a perfectly acceptable way to produce an heir for yourself. You're getting old, um, your wife can't have children, you want to pass on your inheritance to future generations and your legacy, your family name, whatever. Yeah, take, take a servant, have a child, that way you can have an heir. But according to God, according to God's law, this is certainly Abraham, Abraham breaking that one flesh union with his wife. And we'll see the ramifications of that a little later on. So if you're reading this story for the first time and you see God promised a son, Ishmael came, you're probably like, okay, story over. It's all going to flow through Ishmael. But God is persistent. And in chapter 18, God tells Abraham and Sarah again that she will bear a son. And if you're familiar with the story, she literally laughs out loud at God. But then we see in chapter 21 where Sarah finally conceives and gives birth to Isaac at the age of 90. So, Paul uses this story in Galatians 4 to essentially split people into two covenants. There's the son of the slave woman, the son of Hagar, who is Ishmael, and the son of the free woman, who is Isaac, the son of Sarah. And the basic point that the false teachers in Galatia were trying to make was that your obedience to the whole law is what makes you a child of Abraham. It, it stamps your ticket into the line of the promise. They were teaching, essentially, do you want in with God? Well then, do what he says. That's your in. But Paul's point is that it is not your work, but rather believing in Christ that makes you a child of God. And as we saw in this quick summary of the story of Abraham, Ishmael was the son that Abraham had as the result of his own works. When he took matters into his own hands and said, I don't trust you, God, I'm going to have to do this myself. But Isaac was born as a result of God's faithfulness, not as the result of Abraham's great effort, but of God's promise and following through with what he promised. And now this allegory kind of starts to unfold as Paul literally tells us in verse 24. This is an allegory. Hagar and Ishmael represent the law given on Mount Sinai, which is the modern day Jerusalem. So those who have not accepted Christ and live under the law. And Isaac and Sarah represent the new Jerusalem, 
freedom from the bondage of the law. And this allegory plays itself out in history as well. By taking matters into his own hands and sleeping with Hagar, Abraham just made a huge mess. There was strife in his family. Um, Sarah became jealous of Hagar, which who would have seen that coming? You're sleeping with your servant and having a child with your wife who can't bear children. You're essentially saying, you, you know, I, I can't get what I want through you. There's so much there that just caused problems as it would anywhere. And as time went on, there was strife and warfare between the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac. If you're familiar at all with the history of Islam, Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael. So the entire religion of Islam and all of the contention that has existed that we're living with today as a re- it was a result of Abraham not trusting God and doing things his own way. So a few years ago, I was backpacking with Matt Jones. Some of you know Matt. Um, we were in Shenandoah in Virginia. We left on a Friday after work um, and after you know, stopping for dinner, hitting inevitable Baltimore, D.C. traffic. Um, we got there pretty well after dark. Um, and our plan that night was to hike in three miles, find a spot to camp, and kind of keep going the next day. So we got there, turned on our headlights, and started off into the dark. Um, we found the trail, hiked our three miles, um, found a good spot to camp, um, set up our tent, and then needed to find a spot to hang up our food away from the bears. So it's recommended when you're, you know, out in the backcountry like this, that you hang your food kind of like 100 yards from your campsite and at least 20 feet up in the air. And it's already hard enough to kind of find the perfect tree branch that you can throw the rope over and get it up high enough. That's hard enough during the day, but at 1, 2 in the morning when you're going around with flashlights, we, we ended up wandering around quite a bit to find the perfect spot. So we finally found it. We hung up our food. Um, And then we turned around to go back to the tent and go to bed because we were tired and realized we have absolutely no idea where we are. We've been wandering around the woods for probably 10, 15 minutes. Well, neither of us really showed that we were concerned, but I think we both felt like a little bit of panic. Okay, we're in the middle of the woods. It's 2 in the morning. We have no idea where we are. Where's the tent? At least we have food here if we really need it, I guess. Um, But after stumbling around for what felt like hours, but was probably all of 10 minutes, my headlamp kind of caught like, there's like reflective stuff on the side of the tent, and oh, I didn't see it, and we could kind of peek through the trees, and we we ended up making it back fine, all was well. But the next morning, I woke up um, expecting to hike for probably a good 10 minutes to find where the heck we put our food, and all that to realize it was probably 50 feet from our tent. It was not far at all. Um, we realized we probably were just wandering in circles for 10 minutes, a little panicked, wondering, are we, are we going to live through this? And I share this story because this is what often happens when we fall into sin. We are wandering around in darkness, and when we realize our sin, when we feel an inkling of conviction, or I shouldn't be doing this, our instinct is typically to just fix it ourselves. I can turn this around. I can do enough good things to outweigh that one. Um, But like Matt and I wandering around in the forest, this response of working our way out typically only makes things worse. We dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. So just as Abraham needed to switch his faith 
from his own efforts to God's work, so the Galatians need to look to Christ up and above their own efforts. And with this in mind, Paul quotes here a passage from Isaiah 54, which I think is a passage that gives great hope to anyone who is in need of grace. Paul says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And once again, this passage, I think, gives tremendous hope to anyone who finds themselves lost in sin, stuck in sin. Now, Paul's already said this is all meant to be interpreted allegorically. So, we know this is not just a passage intended to speak to those who find themselves in the specific situation of being unable to have children, although it does provide hope there. I think this passage is for anyone who found themselves in the position the Galatians were in. They were being told by false teachers that they were too flawed, too sinful, too far gone to be saved. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this has been you for years. Maybe you've been told this by someone else. Maybe you've told this to yourself. Maybe you feel defeated by sin, like you're not good enough, you're not moral enough. Um, No matter how hard you try, it never seems to be enough. And what the gospel tells you in this passage this morning is rejoice. Rejoice because it's not you who does the work, it's God who does it. And the starting point of the gospel is where we all start, dead in our sin. God created the whole world, including you and I, and he created us to be good. But as you might be familiar with, the the first man created, Adam, chose to reject God as ruler and decided to live with himself as king. And since then, all of humanity has been in the same position dead in our sin, living as our own rulers. And this is the reason why evil is even in the world. We chose our own ways above God's. So when anyone measures their own morality against what God requires in Scripture, we all fall short. And when Jesus talks about perfection, he he breaks things down to the heart level. God doesn't just want surface obedience. He wants hearts that perfectly obey. And I don't think anything has shown me how ingrained sinfulness is in humans more than having kids. Anyone who's had kids can remember probably the first time that you realize, wait a minute, this this kid knows what he's doing. At first, it's cute and innocent, like, you know, the baby kind of swipes at your face and you're like, did he just punch me? No, he's just a baby. He's, He's just moving his arms around. But... There's a certain point, probably a little after they start talking, that you start to realize that, man, this is just another human being that thinks that their own plan is the best plan. They want to live as their own little ruler in their own little kingdom. And as an adult, um, observing the intricacies of my two-year-old's little kingdom, um, it's pretty entertaining. He's just recently learned how to open our front door, which is really fun. He can unlock the deadbolt and walk right out. Um, but I can't help but wonder, what's your plan after that? You're, you're going to run out in the street, you're going to enjoy watching the big trucks go by, I know they're fun, they're exciting, but what are you going to do next? Uh, what are you going to eat for dinner? Where are you going to sleep? Are you going to sleep on the sidewalk? Do you even know your way home? You're just 
wandering out to the road. And in wondering about the wanderings of a toddler around Newark, I can't help but think that this is probably exactly what we look like to God. We're wandering in our sin, chasing every fleeting pleasure, rebelling against God and his rules. But God in his great mercy did not leave us to work our way out. He didn't throw our way this unkeepable list and say, good luck, just like I don't throw an unkeepable list at my toddler and let him wander into the street. He sent his son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sin and our rebellion that we deserved upon his shoulders so that when we put our faith in him and stop relying on ourselves, we're promised eternity with him. So Paul continues in this passage. He says, you, brothers, you who believe in the grace of God to save, you who trust in Christ, you're children of the promise. And just as with Isaac and Ishmael, those who seek salvation through the law will push back against you. And why do they push back? Well, because the gospel tends to be more threatening to the self-righteous than it is to those who believe that they're saved by grace. So when Paul tells them to cast out the slave woman and her son, what he's telling the Galatians is to rebuke these false teachers. If anyone is preaching a works-based salvation, he's saying don't listen to them because they're not just teaching slightly incorrectly. They don't just have a few things wrong. They're teaching another gospel, a false gospel. And I think the first verse of chapter 5 wraps up this section very nicely for us. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want you to know that salvation is not found in being better. You might have told yourself that. You might have had someone else tell you that. Hey, you want to be a Christian? Get your act together. Salvation is not found in becoming better, but rather it's found in believing in Jesus and turning to him to change your heart. But if you're here and you are a believer and you find yourself weighed down by this pressure to do more, to do better, to be better, Paul says cast that aside. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to do what God commands. We certainly should. But if our striving is not done joyfully, we are, as Paul says, submitting to the slavery of sin. We are living as children of Ishmael, children of a works-based religion, rather than children of grace, children of the promise. And as Paul exhorts the Galatians, rejoice You're children of the promise. Christ has set you free, so walk in freedom. And what exactly does walking in freedom look like? Well, as we saw, it looks like rejoicing despite being weighed down by sin. And not just weighed down by sin, but the pressure to do more in order to earn your righteousness. But I think it's important to note that rejoicing, just by nature of the word, is always external. It's always visible. 
In Psalm 96, the psalmist says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So notice that telling of his salvation from day to day and declaring of his glory to among the nations and his marveling works among all peoples are tied directly with rejoicing in the Lord. I think it's evident from a passage like this that you are not truly rejoicing if you are not declaring the greatness of the Lord to all nations, to anyone who hasn't heard. If we really believe that Christ has set us free from slavery to sin, we will devote our entire lives to ensuring that every single person on this planet also hears about this freedom. And why do we do this? Well, the fourth verse of Psalm 96 says, For, because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We do this because God is worthy of it. God has shown us great grace, so let's go in freedom and declare that grace to the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would transform every one of us into lovers of your law, lovers of what you command, and lovers of grace. God, I pray that we would long to do your will and obey your commands out of the joy of obeying a perfect and loving Father. God, I'm thankful that we don't have to live with constant anxiety, wondering if we're good enough, if we measure up, but that we can rest knowing that Jesus is good enough. And God, I pray that as this truth settles into our hearts, that we would be compelled to declare your good works, to declare your grace to the entire world. God, I pray that even here this morning, you would be raising up people that would go to hard-to-reach corners of the earth, not to sell them some idea or tell them to get their act together, but rather to declare your glory to the nations because you are greatly to be praised. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.